Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Gary Smith, and we're talking about his new book, Duty and Destiny, The Life and Faith of Winston Churchill. Duty and Destiny was just released with Erdman's Publishing as part of their Library of Religious Biography series. Gary, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Zach. My pleasure. Well, Gary, before we get into your book, why don't you tell us something about yourself, what you do, and and how you came to work on this project? This this isn't your first book on a religious life, is it? No, I've written about American presidents and their faith, uh, two volumes that were published by Oxford University Press. Each of them dealt with the faith of 11 different presidents. So this is in my interest area of religion and politics, but it, of course, it goes across the pond and looks at Winston Churchill. So, yeah, I taught uh, history at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania for almost 40 years, chaired the history department, coordinated the humanities corps, retired in 2017 and moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, where I'm currently a parish associate with a fairly large Presbyterian Church USA congregation. I also direct the mission program at the church, which involves a couple of international relationships in Malawi and Manaus in Brazil. So those are my main activities. Uh, In retirement, I have a lot more time to write than I used to have. Uh, Erdman's invited me to do a book in this library religion series that you mentioned, religious biography series. And their only criterion was that it be on someone important. And I said, how about Winston Churchill? And they said, yes, he's definitely important enough. So I've been, uh, it, was a, it was a fun project to work on the religious views of Winston Churchill. That's great. Well, it's a really fine book that you've written. And it's got a great cover on it, too. It's this, this photograph of Churchill at the demonstration of the B-17 bomber in, in 1940. The title is interesting, too, Duty and Destiny. These words seem to capture something of the enigma that is Churchill's faith, don't they? They do. Uh, Duty was a very important concept in his life. He he lived that out. Uh, He always tried to do his duty as he understood it to Britain and its empire, to Britain, the country, to his God as he understood God, uh, to his class, to his family. So, yes, duty was something that drove him, something that was very, very significant in his life. And I argue that destiny is a very important concept for him as well. It's not always clear precisely who or what he believed uh, determined his destiny. Uh, Sometimes he talked in very explicit terms about God being in control of the universe and God's providence. But other times he seemed to refer more to fate or luck or some kind of impersonal destiny driving the universe. But it certainly depended on where he was uh, in his life in terms of which of those concepts he favored. Uh, In in his 20s, he had a period of religious skepticism and 
He was much more inclined to look at fate as the important determinant. But later in his life, he returned to a more traditional Anglican faith that he had espoused in his youth. And then he tended to talk much more in terms of God's providence and God's control over the universe. But I, I do talk in the book quite a bit about the many narrow escapes that he had in his life uh, as a child, uh, even at birth. Uh, he barely survived his birth. Um, he had pneumonia as a child. He he fell one time from a 30-foot-high bridge when he was about 18 years old and ended up in a coma. He was almost killed in battle several times. He was captured by the Boers during the war in South Africa. He almost died during World War One when a bomb exploded in a, uh, a hut that he had previously been in, and he had just left for a meeting with a, with a superior. So he was hurt in an accident, in a car accident in New York City in 1931. There are many different times that uh, he could have died. And so he, he looked back on all of this and he said, you know, someone or something is, is preserving me for greater things. And he said famously after he became prime minister that I felt like I was walking with destiny, that uh, God had prepared him for this moment. And I think a lot of the British people uh, and many others would agree with that assessment. Yeah, that's really good. Well, tell us, tell us how how looking at his religious life provides an, a new lens uh, of of looking at Winston Churchill. How was this bio- biography different than others? Well, I argue that Churchill's religion has either been underappreciated and understudied, which is what most biographers have done, or it has been presented as much more orthodox and Christian than it, than it was. So I try to uh, take a middle course and argue that religion was a very important aspect in his life, but it wasn't in a traditional sense uh, that of mid-20th century Anglicanism. While he was officially and formally an Anglican, and he certainly had appearances at various Anglican services, in many ways, um, he didn't practice Christianity very uh, devoutly. I mean, no one would argue that he was uh, religiously pious. Um, he did not attend church much as an adult. But I, but I do argue that Christianity definitely informed his worldview, his understanding of, of the universe, of humanity, of destiny, of uh, Christian civilization and the necessity of preserving it against the onslaught by the Nazis during World War II. So I'm trying to take a middle position. I, I do argue that his religion is ultimately an enigma because he was pretty guarded and private about it, in part because he wasn't that orthodox. And when you're in a country where religion and Christianity have had a big impact upon its history, as in 20th century Britain, particularly before and during World War II, and you don't share all those convictions, you don't want to be very public about how you might differ. But in but in in many ways he did espouse the central Christian concepts uh, and a, a, a belief in the Christian God. I do argue, however, that he's probably a Unitarian in that he does not see Jesus as the divine Son of God, although he certainly doesn't make that very apparent. He doesn't rarely talks about Jesus, but the few times he does, he seems to see him as a great moral teacher, a great humanitarian, but not necessarily as God's unique son. Yeah. Well, 
do you get the sense ultimately that he saw himself more as part of the Christian church or did he think of himself more on the outside looking in? Well, that's a great question. Uh, he often referred to himself as a buttress, like a flying buttress um, from the uh, architectural uh, perspective. And that's somebody that provides support from the outside rather than a pillar that's inside the church holding it up. So in some senses, he did see himself as an outsider. But in other ways, he saw himself as one of the principal defenders of Christian civilization uh, during the 20th century. And he actually, during the war, he had one speech where he called on the king of Italy um, as an ally in the faith, as, as Italy being where the pope was, of course, the center of Catholicism, and, and saying, look, we Anglicans here in Britain are Christians. You Italians are Christians. We need to work together. We can't support the Nazis, which are anti-God, anti-Christianity, want to destroy it. So there was this general appeal throughout many of his greatest speeches in World War II to the importance of preserving Christian civilization, which, as he understood, it was Judeo-Christian civilization, but preserving the great biblical truths, that the idea of a transcendent God, an idea that uh, God created, that he sustained the universe, and that ultimately God would judge people for their actions. So in that sense, you could say he was within the mainstream Christian tradition, but in other ways, he was kind of on the periphery because he did not attend church very often, and he was arguably a Unitarian rather than a, a, a Trinitarian. Yeah, his faith definitely seems a bit paradoxical. You know, we're we're aware of some of the intellectual doubts he had, uh, but he was still leveraging religion in the context of war, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Well, absolutely. And this, of course, is one of the things I talk about quite a bit in the book, and that's the use of religious rhetoric. And mm -hmm. I've talked about that previously in a couple of books on the faith of American presidents. And, you know, why do presidents and prime ministers use religious rhetoric? Does it express their genuine conviction? Uh, in some cases, it does. I think in some ways it did express Churchill's heart and his core beliefs. But in a country that is religiously oriented, like the United States throughout our history and Britain in its history, at least up through World War II, you're trying to connect with the populace. You're trying to have a message that resonates with people. And so you're inclined to use language that comforts them, that consoles them, that inspires them, that motivates them. And especially in times of incredible turmoil, as Britain was experiencing in World War II. I mean, remember after the fall of France, and it's going to be a year and a half before the United States enters the war. And Britain is essentially fighting alone. And there's this understandable, realistic fear that the Nazis are going to successfully invade Britain and, and force it to surrender and submit. And under these circumstances, some of the most dangerous ones in history, you could see why uh, Churchill would appeal to the the Bible and to God and to Christianity as a bulwark, as a support for what the Brits were going through. I think that's really well expressed. Well, there's been so much written on Churchill and, and you draw on, on existing scholarship, but you also spend time in his letters and diaries. Um, how did mining through these resources help shape your understanding of his faith? You know, was there anything that, that surprised you from these documents? 
Well, Churchill's life is one of the most documented, well-documented ones in human history because of how much he wrote. He wrote extensively about every aspect of his life. And then, of course, as you mentioned, because he's had so many biographers, uh, so many so many scholarly articles, so many popular books, so much has been written about him because of his significance. He's arguably the most important person in the 20th century. And in recent polls, the Brits have voted him the most important Brit of all time, surpassing Shakespeare and Darwin and everyone else in their history. So not surprisingly, he's attracted a lot of attention. It is fascinating to read his letters. Uh, thousands of them have been preserved. Um, he, again, has several autobiographies where he discusses what was going on in his life at length. So you can get a pretty good insight into what he is thinking and believing and feeling about a wide variety of subjects. Again, I would say that at some points, particularly uh, after the 19, after roughly 1920, he is more guarded in what he says about religion. He's not as transparent about it as he is a lot of other subjects. But early in his life, when he was in India in the military and grappling with what he believed, uh, he was very open and, and said a lot about that in letters to his mother, the former headmaster of Harrow, the third boarding school he attended in what we would call the high school years. So yeah, one can glean a lot about his uh, religious practices and beliefs and skepticism, doubts, struggles uh, by reading his, his letters, his books, uh, even articles that he sometimes wrote refer to these kinds of things. So I guess what I gleaned was that it is a very complicated, complex and colorful subject. It is ultimately a conundrum, enigma, a riddle, trying to figure out what he believed, because I would say that he wasn't sure what he believed, and it changed over time. Um, and he didn't have a comprehensive, coherent worldview, as, as Christians would like to say. And that has led to a wide variety of interpretations of him religiously. Everything from being an agnostic and an atheist and a deist, that is one who believes that God created the world and then lets it operate on its own, to on the other extreme, some people saying that he was pretty orthodox uh, in his belief system. So, uh, again, I come down in the middle. I say that uh, he was certainly not an atheist, certainly not an agnostic. He professed belief in God numerous times, and it was a guiding force in his life to some extent. But he certainly wasn't a Trinitarian, uh, quote-unquote, Bible-believing Christian. Yeah. Well, Churchill believed that God had he had chosen Britain to play a particular role in, in, in world history. Um, was, was this unique of Churchill um, among his peers, or did, or did he embody or, or, or resemble a, a Christian nationalism that, that was unique in some way? Well, one of the things I do in my book that hasn't been done in relationship to Churchill is I try to set him in the context of other <clears throat> religious politicians and prime ministers in British history, starting with William Wilberforce and even going beyond Churchill to talk about Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair. So I would argue that, no, he is not certainly unique. He wasn't unique in his time period. 
uh, Stanley Baldwin, who was a prime minister before Neville and Neville Chamberlain, who preceded Churchill, also had a very strong belief in this Christian nationalism. And I think we should note parenthetically that we talk a lot about American exceptionalism and America as a chosen nation, uh, going back to John Winthrop's famous sermon, Model of Christian Charity, and that whole theme in American history, which I think is in many ways misguided. But nevertheless, you have in British history a same kind of mentality, a same kind of perspective and approach that Britain has a unique role to play in God's plans. And just look at the empire, look at its scope, look at its success, look at its uh, value to the world. And and Churchill was a strong believer in this. And, And this ultimately was one of the things that hurt him politically because he tried to cling to uh, the concept of the British Empire, even when it wasn't uh, feasible anymore, when Britain declined after World War II, and also when countries uh, in the empire were clamoring for independence, India, African nations, and Churchill ends up being pretty regressive and suppressive uh, and holding on to uh, denying some of these countries independence because he argued that they weren't yet ready for it. Well, there's there's really three areas that you analyze in in the book here on Churchill. Um, you've mentioned one of them, biblical uh, rhetoric, already. But those those three areas are are beliefs and practices, biblical rhetoric, and and how religious convictions influenced his objectives and policies. Um, and like I mentioned, we've covered some of this material already generally, but focusing in on these as distinct topics, could you maybe outline for us your findings on, on each of these features? Well, I go through in the book how what his views were on a variety of subjects. I talk about what he believed about God, what he believed about human nature, what he believed about Jesus, um, what he believed about the afterlife. I talk about um, what he believed about the Bible, providence, uh, morality, and so on. So I, I do try to more fully, I think, than anyone has done to, to date, uh, specify what he did believe based on the statements that he made. So that's how, that's how I cover his beliefs. And again, I would say that in, in some ways, pretty mainstream Christian, um, in other ways, um, you know, evangelicals in particular would be disappointed that he didn't go far enough with regard to some of his convictions. Um, I do make some comparisons in the book between Churchill and Franklin D. Roosevelt for a variety of reasons. One, that they were friends. They exchanged a couple thousand letters. They spent time together. They were both Anglican or Episcopalians. And and in that context, I argue that FDR was much more religiously devout than Churchill and much more explicit about statements that he made about the value and importance of religion, uh, particularly about Jesus. And but I talk I talk quite a bit about their relationship and some similarities and differences between them. It is interesting, and I detail this in the book about the fact that in the summer of 1941, they meet uh, on the HMS Wales off the coast of Newfoundland to devise the Atlantic Charter, to set forth the joint goals of 
the United States and Britain for what the world will be like after World War II. And at that meeting, one of the things that is a highlight is that they hold a worship service. You can actually go online and find video of that service, but they sing Onward Christian Soldiers, they read from the book of Joshua, they have prayers. Uh, it's a very meaningful time for both of them, and they both comment extensively about it after the fact. And then three months later, after the Pearl Harbor, uh, Churchill comes to the U.S. to meet with FDR in person and to speak to Congress and give some other addresses. And while they're there, um, they go to church on Christmas Day uh, at the Foundry Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. And that's a very meaningful experience for both of them as they discuss it. And then a week later, they go to Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, George Washington's church for a National Day of Prayer celebration. And they both talk about how in the context of what's going on in the world with the Nazis. And remember, again, things aren't looking good for the Allies at this point. The United States has entered the war, but Japan and Germany in particular seem to have the upper hand in the Pacific and in Europe. So these are perilous times. And both of these men are, are relying upon their, their faith as they understand it and their friendship to uh, combat the dangers as they perceive them. So, and again, back to rhetoric, um, Churchill does not use as much religious rhetoric as FDR or many other American presidents for that matter, but he does use a considerable amount. And I try to detail that uh, by looking at some of his most famous speeches and how he uses biblical quotations. Uh, I do note in the book that he knew the Bible very well. Uh, he was raised, again, in, in boarding schools that accentuated uh, Bible teaching and religious teaching. He had a, a nanny named Elizabeth Everett, who was a devout Christian, who raised him a lot much more than his parents did. Um, and through that, he, and having a fantastic memory, uh, he knew the Bible quite well. He quoted it frequently. He quoted hymns frequently. He quoted the Book of Common Prayer, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer frequently. Uh, and all those things come out in the things that he wrote, the things that he said. And I don't believe they're just window dressing. I believe that in some ways they do express his deepest convictions. Yeah, that's that's very good. And, and you mentioned some of, of Churchill's early life and just now, and and you cover that in, in chapter three. Um, in chapter four, you're you're talking about his early twenties, and it was then that he began to reassess uh, his religion in, in the context of war. Um, what was it during these years that that caused him to kind of reevaluate some of his uh, assumptions about Christianity? Was it was he coming in contact with new ideas, or was he reading certain things, or or what was it that that kind of changed his thinking during this time? Well, that's a great question. I would say that a lot of people at that age begin to question their religious framework, their religious foundation, their religious upbringing and socialization. And certainly Churchill was not unique in that way. So early 20s, uh, for some people comes earlier, but Churchill, we need to remember, did not go to a university. He did not have a college education. And so he was self-taught. And when he was in India, uh, in the military, he had a lot of time on his hands. There were a lot of religious discussions going on among the officers and they, he became exposed to a variety of books that 
he would have read if he had gone to university, Cambridge, Oxford. And those books, such as those of William Lecky and Edward Gibbons, The, the Fall and Decline of the Roman Empire, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, uh, William Winwood Reed, um, they, were all, they were all pretty skeptical towards Christianity. So he read a lot of literature in that vein, and he didn't really have the other side uh, to back him up. You know, he didn't have people suggesting, well, you need to read um, people who would be countering the arguments that these folks are, are making, the kind of stuff that, let's say, C.S. Lewis does in the 1940s and, and 50s. So in that sense, he was, he was buying into a, a fair amount of these skeptical perspectives towards Christianity and kind of repudiating some of the... Uh, <clears throat> The background that he had. He had this headmaster I mentioned, James Weldon from Harrow School, and they carried on an extensive correspondence uh, during this period of time talking about uh, missions and, and the value and appropriateness of Christian missions. And But but essentially and finally, Churchill does by and large come out of the skepticism and return to at least a modified understanding of the faith that he was raised in. Um, and I would say that happens mainly because of what we might call the school of hard knocks, um, these life experiences that he has where he realizes that this kind of um, general philosophic orientation doesn't cut it. It doesn't, doesn't help him deal with the fact that he's on the verge of death so often. Uh, and so he, he in, in desperate situations, he turns to God and, and God seems to deliver him. Um, I talk at one point about when he's captured by the Boers in South Africa working as a war correspondent and he escapes and he's he does it pretty disoriented, dislocated, doesn't know the area very well. Um, he's kind of groping in the dark physically and, and literally. And he ends up at the home of a guy named John Howard. And, and John Howard turns out to be a Brit with a mining background who helps him escape. And John Howard says, if you had gone to any other home within a 20 mile radius, they would have turned you into the boards. You managed to turn to the one place where I'm going to help rescue you. So, you know, that kind of thing um, definitely um, <laughs> would, 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 would help fortify your faith. And it did so in the case of, um, of Churchill. Sure. Well, if, if we jump forward up to the so-called wilderness years, you cover this in, in chapter 6, 1931 to 1939, you include a discussion on Churchill's understanding of Islam and Judaism and his relationship with Muslims and Jews. What did you find here? Well, he was very favorable toward Judaism as the parent of Christianity. And he had had very positive relationships with Jews uh, throughout his earlier life. They had helped him out financially. They had helped his father out financially. Um, he, he wrote this long essay about Moses in 1931, where he talked about um, Moses as a prophet and the importance that Moses had played in Israelite history. He, he seems pretty pretty doggone orthodox when you look at this interview, this article that he wrote. Um, he seems to accept the miraculous nature of the accounts and so on. So he was a, he was a supporter of, of, of Zionism, of the Jews regaining the promised land, Palestine, as a home. Um, he had relationships with some of the leading uh, 
people in Israel at this time. So a lot of things in his life came together, coalesced, came together to make him uh, pretty fascinated with and, and pretty positive toward the Jews. Uh, his views of Islam were much more mixed. Uh, he, he admired the fighting spirit of, of Muslims, um, their ability to engage in combat, their fearlessness, their courage. Um, he appreciated the fact that they were at least monotheists, but on, on other levels, um, he saw them as not very, he saw Islam not very positively. Of course, it had battled with Christianity throughout much of history and was continuing to do so in some of the places where he was fighting in Africa as a young man. So um, we could say that he, he preferred it over Hinduism, over any of the Eastern religions, because it was at least monotheistic. Um, but in general, he was not that positive toward Islam. Very good. Well, in your last chapter, you covered the years 1955 to 1965, his retirement years, and you analyze his beliefs about God, providence, Jesus, the Bible, humanity, morality, sin, salvation, um, the afterlife. Tell us, where did, where did Churchill land on these doctrines as his life came to a close? Well, I would say that, again, he seems to end up fairly close to where he started in terms of his first 18 years of life. Um, he doesn't say a lot about God's attributes. He certainly does see God as personal, as God revealing himself to human beings, as God greatly valuing justice, as uh, providing moral standards for people's behavior. He sees that God is loving. Um, God cares about people and tries to make their lives better, watch over them. He does have, I think, a strong sense of providence, as I said, although sometimes that gets confused with destiny or fate. But generally speaking, God controls the universe from his perspective, Churchill's perspective, and he sees that most readily in the fact that Britain triumphs against this great adversity uh, during World War II. I've already talked about what he, how he saw Jesus as a great teacher, but not the Son of God. In terms of human nature, he tended to see that people had good and bad attributes, and that um, he would try to appeal to the, the good in people, but he recognized that there was a, a generally sinful nature, uh, and, and that expressed itself in many aspects of his life when he had very negative views of socialism and communism. He argued that they were anti-God philosophies that were destructive to people. And he also um, was kind of pessimistic sometimes because of the experiences that he had, especially in later life. You know, you get out of World War II, and then what happens? You get into a Cold War with your former ally, the Soviets. You have this, this threat of nuclear annihilation, development of, of atom and hydrogen bombs. Um, so... Those pose great difficulties for him. His, his last decade, he had a lot of health problems. Uh, he, he battled throughout his life what he called black dog depression. Uh, there were times when that was almost all-consuming um, in his life. So and in terms of morality, I think his, his views were pretty conventional Christian with regard to how he viewed morality. He thought that people were ultimately accountable to God. I, I do have one lengthy section in the chapter when he was— um, after his first term as prime minister, 
and then into his second term in the 1950s, where he's grappling with his responsibility in the use of the atom bomb during World War II, and that someday he would have to stand before God and defend the use of that, as well as the saturation bombing of, of German cities that led to a lot of civilian deaths during World War II. But, but ultimately, he felt that his, his, his uh, actions were defensible because it saved lives in the, in, the, in the long run and that it was the best choice that he had among the options presented to him. Well, it seems that, that maybe he didn't stand a whole lot to gain politically by being too open about his faith, um, especially as he, as he got older, but, but perhaps only, only on those aspects which he thought could encourage you know, morality, social cohesion, that type of thing. He never would affirm the deity of Christ, which you say, and 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 perhaps he he is then best described as as a Unitarian in that regard. Well, I, I think it's so helpful to trace out the religious landscape of of Churchill's thought across his lifetime and and throughout, you know, har- harrowing circumstances, and and I think this study it, it does really contribute a a a good it, it is a good addition to the historiography on Churchill. And Gary, it's been a pleasure to discuss it with you here today. Well, Zach, I appreciate being on this program and uh, yeah. blessings to you. Great. Well, before we wrap up, Gary, tell us tell us what you plan to work on next. Do you have any writing projects on the horizon? Yeah, I've actually finished already uh, a book on the faith of Mark Twain. It's for Oxford University Press's series called Spiritual Lives, which is pretty similar to the religious Library of Religious Biography series that Erdman's has, and it's uh, right now uh, copy editing has been finished, and I'm working on indexing it, so it's coming out in July. But it's it's a study of uh, another complicated individual, another very important individual in uh, American and world history, arguably America's greatest author ever, whose faith is also very enigmatic and and uh, changes over the course of his life. So that was a lot of fun to work on. And then at the moment, I'm working on a, another religious biography for the Erdman series, which I'm hoping to finish and have come out in 2022. And it's on Jackie Robinson. So I've had a fair amount of background in sports history. And so I'm having a lot of fun with that. Um, talking about his his life, both as a baseball player and his civil rights activism after he retired. And one of my arguments is that uh, he makes a bigger contribute contribution to society uh, after he leaves baseball than arguably any other baseball player has done in, in in the history of the game, and maybe a greater contribution than any other sports figure has ever done in the history of, of American life. So, but obviously his uh, his his integration of, of baseball in and of itself is quite a feat and. Uh, so it's a fun it's a fun story to talk about his faith in relationship to those developments. Sure. Well, those both sound like great projects. Maybe we can have you back on when they're released. That'd be great. All right. Well, for now, thank you for writing this book, Duty and Destiny, The Life and Faith of Winston Churchill. It's out now with Erdman's. And Gary, thanks for joining us on the show. Happy to do so, Zach. And thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you again next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.